Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hello, it's the Nerdist Podcast number 337, flying at your head holes into them, really. Um, this is a really fun weekend this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> was working all weekend, did a bunch of uh, shows for the BBC America version of The Nerdist. Uh, amazing guests that we had on, by the way, um, uh, Elijah Wood and Zach Galifianakis and Ben Schwartz and Jack McBrayer and Eliza Dushku and uh, and more to come. So oh, Seth Rogen was also on and a bunch of great comedy performances. Folks like uh, Ron Funches and Kyle Kinane and Natasha Leggero and... Hubel and Sheer. So uh, that premieres March 30th, Saturday, and then Sunday is the well, and then also the 29th, Saturday night, we have a live podcast in Anaheim during WonderCon. Me and Matt and Jonah. I know that's bad grammar, but I'm not doing it over. Uh, and then Sunday we're doing a panel at WonderCon. Sunday around noon, I think, 11 or noon. Uh, just to give you a general update on Nerdist Industries goings on at WonderCon in Anaheim if you're there. And then the 31st is uh, the season finale of Walking Dead, the season finale of Talking Dead. I'm really bummed that's going to go away for several months. Uh, and uh, Norman Reedus is going to be on. Norman Reedus will be uh, one of the guests. So, so tune in then for Talking Dead. Uh, poor Sky Dart's in a heap. She had a, a little bit of surgery this weekend. We spent the weekend in the hospital when I wasn't working. And uh, that was fun. Hospitals are fun. I like how you started off the intro saying... This was a fun weekend. It was, well, <laughs> parts of it were fun. <laughs> but it was always fun to be there with you. Aw, sweet. Even in your weakened condition. It's all right. Skydart's fine. Everything's going to be fine. Um, she's okay. I'm fine, guys. Yeah, she's fine. But uh, sometimes you just got to have a little surgery. I just felt like this was a good time to do it. I was like, you know what? I could use some surgery right now. I just, I've always, I said, Chloe... Like, is, is the emergency room busy on, on a Saturday? You're so perfect. I feel like if you had both sets of uh, genitals, it'd be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I totally agreed. I mean, just on a whim. Yeah. And I thought that the, C, the ER was very cool about letting us come in and say... Can you put a dick on? We just found this dick in the ground. Can you put it on? <laughs> I can't laugh because it hurts so much. The new dick. <laughs> yeah, the new dick. Well, the sensation of getting a boner is going to feel weird to you. It's probably like smelling for the first time, but soon you'll get used to it and you'll... Stop it. It hurts. <laughs> you'll want to pee on a tree and shoot someone with a gun. So we'll get you a loud car and everything. Well, I don't have the balls yet. <laughs> What? <laughs> That's what you need to shoot a gun. I thought we paid for a full set. What are you doing going a la carte on me? <laughs> God damn it. 
hurts. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Everything's fine. But uh, go on to Twitter and give at Skydart a nice little hug and, and well wishes. Um, this episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Quick and easy way to get postage. If you can't leave your house because you just had surgery, for instance, you still got to mail stuff because the world's not going to stop for you. So get stamps.com. You can print postage out from your computer. Your mail carrier will come and pick it up. Some of those words sounded like words. <laughs> your mail carrier will come pick it up right from your hands. Uh, and then you never have to leave your house. You don't have to deal with the post office. It's great. If you're a Nerdist listener, you're going to get a special offer using the promo code NERDIST and no risk trial. $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and to $55 of free postage. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the old microphone at the top of the homepage and type in NERDIST. That's stamps.com and enter the promo code Nerdist. This episode is Nick Offerman, who I have been dying to get on the podcast for a long time, and our schedules just didn't work out. But this time, they finally did. Um, Nick, of course, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. He also has a movie out now called Somebody Up There Likes Me, which is available. You can just go get it on the internet. Use Google. Or Bing, if you're Jonah. Um, but... Uh, Nick, I think, has sort of he's a, he's sort of ascended to this place of like, ah, Nick is a man. That's a dude. That's a guy you want to hang out with. You know, he's an actor, musician, writer, producer, master woodworker. He's just a cool guy. He's just a good energy. And uh, I, I think I even say this at the end of the podcast. Nick Offerman absolutely did not disappoint. So uh, this was a, a super fun conversation, and uh, and now I lay it at your feet for your judgment. Judge me! Uh, parentheses, don't judge me. Nurse Podcast number 337 with Nick Offerman. Now entering Nerdist.com. The thing I need to do is figure out how to get them on my phone and play them in my car. <laughs> that's the, because that's the only time I could like, I have time to listen to something. Is when you're you're spending uh, ridiculous amounts of time in your car in yeah. Los Angeles. Yes. Which is all you do, and and can you really listen to the same playlist over and over again on your iPod? That's that's, what that's my habit. What what what's on your playlist right now? I listen to Tom Waits as my default. I was l- just listening to Kings of Leon. Uh-huh. I don't do playlists that much. I have them in my shop. Mm-hmm. We have a playlist called Elbow Grease, but I I'm not good at like a like my playlist will be like four four hundred songs or seven hundred songs, and then I do shuffle. So I do seven hundred songs, all of which will be good. In any permutation, mm-hmm. not following each other. <laughs> oh, nice! Well done. Well, seven hundred is it? You know, I I don't know why I, I my my playlists are like fourteen songs. There's something to be said for that. I mean, that's the old you know, it's the standard mixtape length. I'm a child of mixtapes. I think it is. Did you ever do the thing when you were a kid? Where you, did you did you ever do radio DJ when you were a kid? Where you record the radio and then introduce the songs and then record your voice over it? No, I had a friend who did that. Who had like a, his own little home studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name was Mac Crawford, 
and he was he he would like produce tapes and and disseminate them at school to <laughs> the six nerds that would accept them one of them being me uh I thought very highly of him. He had a whole persona of like, hey, this is Mackie coming at you. That was, uh, that was Rudy Valley in the Four Seasons. I was actually going to suggest Midnight Max. He would do that whole uh, Midnight thing. Midnight Max. <laughs> is, uh, is the music. Here we go. I admired him. Uh, his, his, and his work was clean. His engineering was sound. You couldn't really hear the Panasonic clicks. What did he end up doing? I'm not sure what became of Matt Crawford. See, I the way you were telling the story, like, and then he died senior year. Like, I thought he changed his name to Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he became very good looking. Wow! And he just gave up radio. He's like, he had a face for radio in high school, but then he got all handsome and got a jawline. Um, it's it's nice that I'm so happy that you're finally on this podcast. It's. Uh, I've been dying to get you on for a long time. You're often requested. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's I, I was so tickled the other day when I walked past the Jason Schwartzman episode yeah. <laughs> and was like, "Geez, those guys are. I think they're being nice to me." They, we were. We and, and we, we literally. I think like I think um, a third of that podcast was devoted to the legend of Nick Offerman. It was. It was. How do we, you know, how do we become more like, I think you were kind of our spirit animal for that, for that episode. And oh, we almost God. tried to gang jump you into that episode, but you were on Did your, you run into the elevator? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have, um, I would have succumbed to that ardor, but I was running off. Uh, my schedule for the last year has been what I like to refer to as assholing myself. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure exactly what that means, but, um. But it's not good. Well, it's just basically, I think what it means is, uh, because I am very good at that, which is, if there's a hole in my schedule, I go, oh, well, I got to fill that. I would think in your case, maybe there's some woodworking at play where you go, oh, this uh, this thing needs to be filled with material. I'm going to fill it and make it all even out. And, uh, and I realize lately, you don't have to fill every minute of every day. No. Nor do you have to fill... Uh, nor do you need to fill every, every crevice in a table. I've, I've since learned that's an amateur move. Uh, people think that um, if you have a crack in your table, they have to fill it with putty or epoxy. And invariably, that's going to work loose because the wood contracts and expands over time. And it's going to look like crap, no matter how good of a job you do. But if you just leave it and pay attention to it and keep it clean... You have a beautiful crack, and they call that character. Oh, <laughs> I don't have enough character. Yeah. I'm trying to fill too many of the cracks. Leave the cracks. Someone, after we talked about you in that podcast, <laughs> someone on Twitter tricked me into reading a review of that episode of the podcast where the, this guy's whole point, <laughs> where someone just goes, like, hey, you should check this out. And so... <laughs> Like, I haven't been on the internet for almost 20 years, so I, of course, just clicked on it like a noob who would try to fill his coffee table cracks. And uh, and there was this whole review about how Nick Offerman is what it means to be a man's man and not a bunch of... Why didn't he refer to us? A bunch of... Um, pan, it was like pansy nerds sitting around in our Miss Pac-Man t-shirts. <laughs> that like that Nick good. Offerman is what it is what it means to be a man now, not like not these whiny nerds who are talking about video games. Well, you might I mean, I, I might say to that fellow, uh, A, I'm sitting here in a yum yum donuts t-shirt. <laughs> 
with a smiley face licking its lips. And uh, secondly, uh, I would say to that guy, who's sitting at their computer writing essay-length comments about a podcast? Oh, my God. You just Although, fucking schooled the guy who... See, he has to respect that now well, because you're you know, his pack leader. We're, you know, we're all in this together. Um and we're trying to have a good time while we either make furniture or write on the internet or whatever it is we choose to do. I'd like to uh, jump on the bandwagon and return the incredible ardor to Jason Schwartzman, who um, so generously came out and did a Q&A for this movie I, I'm premiering called Somebody Up There Likes Me. Mm-hmm. He came to the theater this weekend uh, twice to uh, moderate our Q&A, such he's kind of a new friend and I'm, and we have a I think a bit of a man crush going on. He's so sweet and intelligent and curious. He's so sincerely curious that I could talk to him all night. Um he's and he's not just looking to talk about like cool new popular culture. We always dig deeply immediately into like the the theories of Citizen Kane or uh the, some battle strategies from World War One or what have you, and um, I, so I am very grateful to him for the love he's shown me, and I'd like to pay it back tenfold. He is a he is a delightful man who I didn't I had met him once. We both did the Craig Ferguson show together, and I met him, and he was so he's one of those guys that the second you meet him, I didn't know what to expect before, and the second you meet him, you're like. He's a really warm, lovely individual. I want to yeah. hang out with this guy. And then when he came on the podcast, he was just phenomenal. You're not supposed to be that nice uh, when you're when you're uh, Hollywood royalty. And 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 ta- and that talented too. Yeah. Like he really should he really should be kind of a dick. He's, yeah, he's got the goods. This is a fantastic coffee, by the way. Good. I'm glad we were able to provide. We're in our Santa Monica office now, which I never come to because it is west of the 405, which is, it is quicker for me to fly to Vegas than it is to come is. to the office here to it drive across fact. town yeah. to the office. But I happen to be having meetings here today, so I thank you. If this was out of your way, I doubly thank you. Not at all. It, it was uh, it timed out right. If you time it right, you can get here from my shop in under 30 minutes. What? Which is crazy. What sort of wizard? What kind of wizardry is this? <laughs> if you employ a tesseract, <laughs> take the ten. Okay, that's the trick. There's not there's not enough tesseracts in the. Uh... Take the five to the one ten. Uh, there's a then use a tesseract to get to the Robertson <laughs> exit of the ten. Not a lot of people know this, but uh, just there's a, a sautel right up the four five. There's a ripple in the fabric of the universe, and if you can just drive sideways into it, it'll spit you right out uh, on Ventura. Yes. So it's uh, that's. I feel like if, if if we did have that technology, that's what it would be used for: is just getting around <laughs> yeah. traffic. You could go to any planet anywhere. Yeah, I know, but I gotta get to Venice. You gotta get to uh, the Inland Empire. <laughs> no one has to get the to the Inland Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's be honest. No one really has to get to the end of or the City of Commerce. They don't really need to go to the City of Commerce. No. Either. I think M- Mr. Affleck goes there to play cards at the casino. Does he really? Given to understand, or he he did for a while. There's a there's a casino just south of downtown. Yeah, the Commerce Casino. Changa. It's got some sort of, of course, American Indian name, mm-hmm. and that was for a while. That was their big, uh, their big plug was Ben. Join Hollywood glittering Illuminati like Ben Affleck at the card table. <laughs> <laughs> what isn't uh, glittering Hollywood Illuminati Ben Affleck just open his own casino? That's what is, true. What does he have to go to a pre-existing one? I think he won a uh, 
a shot at directing some films at the casino. And that was on the table. So he's keeping busy now. All right, I'm all in, and I raise you Argo. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll see that. I have, let me make a couple South Boston films and <laughs> get out of Dutch. <laughs> all right, I got to do the town. They would be bet Argo versus the town, and then he actually won the town and Argo at the same time. He did, double or nothing. I got to say, I'm very happy with Ben Affleck's uh, success. Younger Ben Affleck, I, could, I didn't really know what to make. I'm like, who is this kind of tall, gangly, kind of handsome, kind of cocky guy? But I, since he seems to be charming hilarious warm i felt like he sort of suffered from they would always they always tried to make him this huge starring role in yeah. something and the films never fully fully connected but but as a director i mean oh my god he's crushing he's fantastic i i love uh the example of both uh ben and jimmy fallon two guys who were young and cute i did a movie with ben in 95 uh and to place it chronologically at lunch, he was talking about he and his buddy had a movie that looked like it was going to get made, which ended up being Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. So he was this young, handsome, uh, thin-waisted, you know, cool actor, and <laughs> I was a bombastic Chicago character actor, <laughs> and it was it was the first substantial role I had in a film, and we had these scenes in like a bar set in the '50s in Indianapolis, and. I'd barrel in and like, hey, Ben Affleck, you know, his character was Gunner. Hey, Gunner, what the fuck? You still uh, planking D.D. Armbruster? <laughs> and he would and he would reply, you know, he'd answer me, hello, how's it going? And I'd, I was like, um, are you going to, is that how loud you're going to talk? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're recording this for the movie. And that was when I learned that you um, act in a smaller, at a smaller volume. In film, um, but I really liked him. He was really nice, and I uh, I've always followed his career. And uh, I love the way that uh, Jimmy Fallon too is like such a cute, talented guy, but was you know a bit of a goof off or something where he sort of faded after his SNL years. And they both have taken these second chances where they've been allowed to mature and show their salt, and are both prospering and doing incredible work. And I, I'm I'm comforted that. When I fall down uh, and and find myself in the gutter, maybe I will find a second chance. For a second, I thought you meant the falling down like the Michael Douglas movie where you get or, out of traffic yeah. with a baseball bat and, <laughs> and beat up gang members. With my new axe. Yeah, you know? <laughs> which you've crafted yourself. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting to see people because, you know, I think we all have this thing in our heads. Well, I don't mean to put this on everyone. I have this thing in my head. I feel like a lot of people do it, though. Where you go, oh, so-and-so, by the time they were my age, they had done this and this and this, so I'm not far enough along yet. Or, But, you know, when you think about comedy or, or really honing your craft, yeah, there's certainly people who hit it in their 20s. But really, I think late 30s, 40s are when you see people really, like, hone it in. You know, Louis or, uh, or, or, or Ben or, or any of these guys. Like, that's really the time where you've fucked around you've experimented with who you are and then you really kind of get a solid idea and then it's on it's it's true i i had the same thing when i was young uh john cusack was a, a sort of heroic figure to me i was i was the right age where like the john hughes movies really hit me where it counts and by the time i became a young actor in my 20s um i i would always just say well let's say i'm 26 
what have I done? And what did Cusack get done? <laughs> a ridiculous comparison. And eventually, you know, you have to let that fall away or drive yourself mad. Um, and when I, when I got the job of parks and recreation, uh, I was 38 and I was, I had learned to be incredibly happy with my life as it was. I was working as an actor. I was unknown. I had an amazing, uh, uh, household, you know, my, my wife is, is the incredible Megan Mullally and, um, I had my woodworking shop and I was happy as a clam. I was like, Oh, this is a great life. I live like a King. Um, and then I got my dream job and I'm, for me, I'm really grateful that, uh, I was able to become pretty solid before I had some success like that. Because if it, if it had happened to me, if I was on the John Cusack channel, I would have, uh, used a lot of cocaine and driven my motorcycle into the side of a mountain as fa quickly as possible. Which is pretty cool to drive your motorcycle into the side of a, an entire mountain. Brief, yes, briefly pretty cool. You know, I have to tell <laughs> you that... Yes, I'm awesome. I it, perish. <laughs> fuck you, mountain. There's no tunnel, but Explosion. we'll see about that. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, um, he ended up having to cancel, but John Cusack was supposed to be the podcast right before you today. Crazy. In this very room, but then he had to move it. Well, I, I would have shaken his hand. I, uh, I admire him very greatly. I, I, think he's, I think he's an interesting guy. I have a feeling, though, that I'm going to want to talk more about film, and he's going to want to talk more about politics. That makes sense. And I'm, and I'm really like, so what do you think the... Okay, we'll talk politics. What do you think the political climate of Better Off Dead was? <laughs> <laughs> what was Booger's political agenda standing on the cliff? <clears throat> this entire mountain is made of snow. Um... What do you when so you, by the time Parks and Rec came along, were you regularly auditioning, or did you was it sort of not so much, and that the right thing came along? Um, no, I was just always you know sort of a journeyman. Uh, I, I had done one brief series on Comedy Central called American Body Shop. Oh yeah, yeah. Which was part of this whole um, like the the they had this weird business model. I don't know if they still do where they would make a ten episode series with unknown people and then throw it in the garbage. Uh, the one before us was Matt Walsh, um, A.D. Miles, a guy, I don't know what became of, uh, named Zach Galifianakis. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I believe Andrea Savage. Yeah, Andrea. Mm -hmm. Oh, the news show. Yeah. Uh, Man Bites Dog. Man Bites Dog, where they would do fake the fake news thing. Yeah. Oh, that's right. They had this, you know... Ruined Zach's career. Insane, insane cast. And they were like, okay, we made 10 of those, garbage, what's next? And then they made our show, and uh, it was a really funny show, and they threw it in the garbage. And um, So, I, I, you know, I was a uh, respected um, veteran actor. It, it was interesting, because um, I come from Chicago theater, not Chicago comedy. Okay. Uh, and, which are two very disparate worlds. Like, I knew Amy Poehler in the early 90s in Chicago, but we just socialized. We never... Even would consider seeing each other's work, yeah, because it was as though she worked at the zoo, and I was like, oh, I, I, uh, I create art. Um, <laughs> you I, work in a library, yeah. She works at Spencer Gifts. There was there was a, a a completely boneheaded like dismissal in the theater community. There was a real snobbery about like, oh, I 
perform the plays of Chekhov and you make shit up in a bar. And you perform the plays of Jackoff. <laughs> yeah, you, like, that's a joke that would have belonged in her world. Exactly. I'm curious about uh, what the event was or what happened that sort of, because the way that you've described yourself, the way that you've described young Nick Offerman so far, um, <laughs> just <a> weird <laughs> Nick Offerman casting his phone cased in a Mophie power pack on the floor. Um, it displeased me. <laughs> when you were Nick Offer boy, what was it that, uh, what was the event that sort of, because you've just, you are portraying yourself as this kind of like arrogant young guy. Like, what was it that made you go, hey, I'm comfortable with myself. I don't have to be that guy anymore. I can just kind of be cool and present. Um, what, what like what got me out of the the sort of stuck up theater mentality? Was it just youth, or did, was there anything that happened that kind of made you go, "Oh, maybe I should kind of reevaluate how I am"? It, or was... it, 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 there wasn't there wasn't one moment. Um, it was more, much more of an erosion. And I think there's a I, I've I've um, analyzed it a lot after the fact. There's a there's a real uh, defensive mechanism is really what it is in Chicago theater. The reason Chicago theater is easily the finest theater community in the country is because there's no ulterior motives in Chicago. You can't, your show can't really go to Broadway generally. Um, you know, one out of 200 shows from Chicago maybe go to, go to Broadway or one out of 500. You can't get a TV show off your play. In Los Angeles, most of the theater, it's so hard to find good theater to see because most people producing theater, it's a, it's an affordable way. Your girlfriend just got a, a new set of tits, and you're like, God damn it, I wish I could get her in front of some agents. Look at these beautiful tits. What can we do? I don't know. T tits the musical. Here's what we do. Yeah, we rent a theater on Santa Monica, and we put up a show, get some jerk to write a, an episode of Friends for us. And there's just so much theater that like has these weird ulterior motives. Or... I mean, you know, that's a funny example, but there I've seen so many things where it's writers trying to get a TV job yep. by writing a play. Same thing with stand-up is that why L.A. is a bad place to develop as a stand-up is because, you know, particularly in the 90s when they were just handing out deals to stand-up comics, um, comics would come here and develop like a really good 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. But then not have an hour, and so they just—they was the sort of the joke was like, "Oh, you got your TV set there," you right, know, right. like just hoping that you would be snatched up by the passing hawk of the entertainment industry that would carry you to this mountain of gold, right. which you'll, you will ride into with your motorcycle. Um, you'll be paid handsomely to write your hour. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then most people, it was—it was really like you said, it was just—it was a means to an end. It wasn't—it um, wasn't doing it for the sake of I really want to take this as far as I can and be as good as I can be. Well, that's the thing. And in Chicago, if you're doing theater and, and committing yourself to that lifestyle, which is a, a, a lifestyle of poverty and, and toil, um, you're doing it because you're driven by a passion to create this art form. And that makes much greater artists than, you know, people that are trying to get on Baywatch. Um, but I, I hope they're not trying to do that now. They would be really <laughs> wasting their time. I, I'm still holding out hope. Um, I uh, and, and so when I moved here, uh, I learned that there's a there's a defense mechanism that allows you to stay in Chicago. And you're like, well, why don't you know you're doing well in Chicago? Why don't you move to where you can get on on TV or work in films? Or why don't you move to New York? 
and you have to say, well, because I'm better than these people. There, there, when I, in the 90s, David Schwimmer had left this great theater company called The Looking Glass uh, to go work in, in L.A. And, and pretty quickly ended up on the show Friends. And so there was this, you know, he was much maligned in the Chicago theater community because there's, there was no merit to what he had done in our minds. He, he had sold out completely to go make some crap for some TV network. And so... For when I was preparing to move to Los Angeles, people would be like, "Oh, pulling the swimmer," <laughs> and you know, and you you began to put yourself in David's shoes, and you're like, "Well, no, I mean, I, for me, I had a tooth that I could fit a peppercorn into a hole in my molar." And I was I was 26, and I was like, "You know, I'm gonna need to get this tooth fixed here at some point." I'm gonna go to Los Angeles, and I've heard of this uh, SAG medical and dental insurance that was really what drove me to la was <laughs> to try and get enough insurance so i could get my tooth fixed the tooth that launched a career it did yeah i have my teeth to thank and uh and i quickly met my wife in a, doing a play here in la and it was really funny because she was on will and grace and uh they had done a couple seasons it was just becoming super popular and uh, it, she was sort of dangled as the lead in the play. They said, well, we want you to do this play, and Megan Mullally from Will & Grace is the lead. And I said, I know you mean that as an incentive, but that I'm not uh, attracted to working with some TV lady. Uh, <laughs> that does not sound like my idea of a good time. I know all about David Schwimmer. I, I come from Chicago theater. And I agreed to do the play despite Megan's involvement. And then immediately at the first read-through, I was like, oh, you're a genius. <laughs> like, <laughs> and you're not uh, too hard on the eyeballs. Um, and so then, then I started watching. I hadn't had a TV for like 10 years, you know, because I was an artist. I, was, I had my head up my own ass. And um, I started watching Will and & Grace, and it took a couple episodes where at first I was like, oh, I'm so embarrassed for these people. <laughs> 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 these, poor, these poor clowns. And then, like, the second episode, I was like, okay, that's pretty funny. And then by the third one, I was like, how do I get this job? This is the greatest job I've ever seen. But it took... So then I became, you know, a huge fan of of all of it. Um, And I just realized, you know, there's a hell of a lot more people being entertained by uh, a television comedy than my production of Coriolanus uh, (laughs) over at the Armory Theater, but further, um, it, I just had I just had to open. Uh, I had to, I had to lose my prejudice, and I I did over the next several years. But the town, interestingly, the business really wants to specialize everybody, and so casting people would say to me, "Oh, I didn't know you do comedy," as though comedy was like speaking Russian or, right. or playing tennis or something. And I was like, "Oh, well, I come, you know, in the theater if you." Or in a theater company, you do what's ever in the season. So you do Shakespeare, then you do a tragedy, then you do Sam Shepard, then you do Neil Simon. Like you're able to do, hopefully, it's sort of part of the word actor. Yeah, ex- exactly. But um, what, and what they mean, what they meant by you don't do comedy is I have a list of people that come from Second City and the UCB and the Groundlings, right. etc. They do comedy. I know that. For a Will Ferrell movie or a Judd Apatow movie, or Apatow, I'm sorry about that, Judd. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Are these, can you see my hives? No. Um, <laughs> Are you okay? Can we get in some water? <laughs> you want a paper bag? 
<laughs> just had a frog in my throat. In uh, you know, casting a Will movie or a Judd movie. I think we know casting a Will movie or a Jed movie. Fuck. <laughs> I meant Judd. A Judd Apatow. Jed. God Fuck damn him. it. <laughs> um, they know that they can trust these people to to perform. You know, any any kind of improv or like they're trained in comedy. But what what they don't trust is if you come from theater, that some of us manage to have those skills as well. I mean, my wife also comes from the theater, but I'd be hard-pressed to find somebody funnier or more facile than she is in comedy. Well, what's interesting about it, too, is that so many great comedy roles can come from traditionally dramatic actors and then vice versa because you find out that comedians have depth. Yeah, and so then you put them into a serious role, and then you can be pleasantly surprised. I think that's sort of the, I think that's that thing that Jim Carrey's always chasing. But uh, and then the and then the opposite, you know, you take Leslie Nielsen as a dramatic actor, and you stick him in a, a comedy and let him be, you know. It, totally, I think Kelsey Grammer is a great example of yeah. somebody who, you know, you just look at the person and look at their skills. Uh, don't look at their resume. Yeah. So that was you know it, it was over the time over that length of time that I. And and by the way, I had absolutely no nothing to back up my it, it, my arrogance. I mean, it wasn't even arrogance so much as just ignorance. You know, it was like oh, it, there there was a time in our country when a lot of the white people uh, had a bad opinion of the black people, mm-hmm. and it also it didn't really stem from arrogance. It came from the ignorance of like, well, I j- I'm conflicted, you know. We used to own them, and we captured them in ships and sold them as property. So now I feel weird about, like, we want them to vote and stuff, you know. And we had to figure out, oh, we're just stupid. Right. Uh, <laughs> hey, everybody, come here, let's get together. Yeah. We should be cool to everybody. Oh, okay. And you know, and, and, and still, not everyone is cool to everybody. No, it's not. But it's, it's generational, you know. I think it's. Uh, it is. We we are evolving, but at a ponderously slow pace. We're still. You know, the whole, the whole same-sex marriage thing is like, okay, <laughs> I know, like, it's cool if everyone, if all the races, like, ride the bus and use the water fountain, but this whole thing of, like, uh, rights for loving couples who have a household, I'm still torn. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I, I, it seems like such an obvious parallel to me. I, I did, I, I had a conversation with someone somewhere, it was an older person, and they were like, and and they thought they were being benevolent, where they were like, "Look, I respect their right to be together. I just don't know why." And I was like, "Yeah, but do you understand that's the same thing as if someone fifty years ago had said, I just don't know why black people should be allowed to get married.' Yeah. I don't have anything against them." And they were like, "Oh, I hadn't. They literally hadn't thought of it that way." Yeah. And and that that simple argument just sort of changed their mind. It. It's to me. It's fascinating. I mean, it's uh, to to live in a in a very progressively minded community. You forget uh, that there are parts of the country where there pe- people are still three or four generations behind us. And there are parts of the valley where people are three <laughs> or four generations behind. You don't That's have true. to go that far, but Los Angeles. I mean, there's you know, a taco stand on Pico. Where uh, <laughs> I mean, you think of it. You know, when you people think of California as. I guess largely being defined by Los Angeles or San Francisco, but it is not like there is a lot of there's a lot of goop in the middle, sure. and it's not um, it's not as progressive progressively minded as you know I think the the rest of the country would think. No, to to its to its detriment and to its advantage. I mean, we, there are 
fantastic, huge, like blue collar working class communities that the vast majority of California is made up of those communities. And they're uh, much more versed, you know, the, the guy who wrote that review of your podcast <laughs> would could, would be outmanned by a 12-year-old girl in most of these towns <laughs> because the, that girl has had to use a shovel and a hatchet. Right. And, you know, she knows how to take the bark off of a, a, a stump of firewood. But at the same time, they're still sort of clinging to these old world uh, prejudices and values. That I mean, if we remember, the film Every Which Way But Loose took place in Reseda. <laughs> like, that was not a small southern town. No. That was the valley, it was. that movie. But let's, you know, so what was with, with Wood... I have a lot of questions for you that are somewhat are career-based and some are more... I, I love this idea of the journeyman, this, this, this person who will, you know... Um, Apprentice, uh, like learn a lot of different, uh, um, a lot of different skill sets, or study a lot of different philosophies, and uh, and so it, it was. Is 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 that sort of the? Pe- Do you find it's better to pursue things that you know you're interested in, or is it better to step outside your comfort zone to learn something that you might not have necessarily known? Um, I'd say. The, I'd lean towards the first. Um, I had this amazing teacher, I still do. His name is Shozo Sato. I call him Sensei. Um, he taught me kabuki theater in college and has remained my friend and teacher. He married Megan and I with a tea ceremony. And among the incredible life lessons he's given me uh, was the notion to always maintain the attitude of a student something that just really always stuck with me, um, that if, if, you, if you think you've become a master, if you think you are done learning, that's when you grow bitter and you just wake up every day looking out the window wondering when they're going to throw a parade for you because you're so terrific. Sure. But if you always have something, because we're human beings, we'll never be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll always be imperfect. So we can always be paying attention to what we can improve in ourselves. And once that landed on me when I was like 19 or 20, I was like, oh, this is fantastic because <laughs> I'm 19. I've got so much shit left to learn. And, um, and so my focus, uh, I was in love with performing. So I focused on theater, which then turned into to TV and film work, um, as well as a continued practice in theater. Uh, and then also my my work uh, building stage scenery eventually became woodworking and boat building and I'm about to build some ukuleles uh, and it, so my when I'm looking for new things to learn I I don't imagine I also recently have started performing as a humorist uh, with this show called American Ham I never thought I'd perform as myself like my whole bag is playing another character. But I got invited to speak at some colleges, and I had some funny songs I had written. So now I have this sort of Garrison Keillor channel that I'm learning to do. Uh, I'm trying to become good at the guitar so that I don't have to mask my musicianship with laughter. Um, And my woodworking, like, you know, I hope to build acoustic guitars, and then who knows, maybe someday a grand piano or a sailboat or even just keep making, like, uh, small, beautiful items. Uh, they're they're all things that I can continue improving upon until I'm I'm done. Until I'm laid in my Viking boat and sent off to my final sunset. 
Are you going to build your own death boat? I'm trying to get Megan to sign on for a Viking funeral in which, uh, when, when, uh, when put together correctly, uh, the deceased is laid in their, in their funeral vessel and set to a sail, and all of the loved ones uh, get drunk and have a party around a bonfire on a cliff overlooking the sea which you're, uh, upon which you're sailing towards the horizon. And just when you reach the, uh, the, the farthest uh, range, all of the guests light flaming arrows from the bonfire and fire them at your sail, which uh, then sets the ship aflame and you disappear directly into the sun, setting sun, uh, that's com- a, completely immolated. That's a gorgeous idea, but since... I, if a lot of your friends are actors, are you worried they're all going to miss them? It's going to take a really good producer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there will be uh, pyro charges. Okay, that's probably a much better way to... Just in case. Yeah, just in case. <laughs> Let everyone feel like they hit the boat. Yeah. yeah. All, all those, what, I feel like a lot of what's going to happen is, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Like the, the, the arrows are going to hit as long as right pr- in the as, immediate... If Pratt's there, we're cool. You're like, good. Okay. Pratt could fire 30 arrows and hit the target with 28 of them. You know, but then you got like we ha- we have the little contingent of of Aubrey and Amy and sure. Rashida and Aziz and um, they you know they maybe together they'll run like a, a catapult or a trebuchet <laughs> with, with a huge flaming charge. <laughs> well, I, I there's so two things. Number one, I did see a piece of the show because I saw a piece of your show online when you introduced uh nancy and beth singing smell yo dick oh yes uh which was uh, a lovely rendition thank of, you of that Some culturally of relevant work. song yeah you know because a lot of ladies are probably like how can i tell if yeah. my man has been cheating the most obvious way that has been right there the entire time is i should just smell your dick smell the tool yeah yeah no it's a pleasing melody but actually great life lesson great life advice is contained therein as well. Unfortunately, I, I think I have high a- estrogen count, and my, my, my I already <laughs> smell like a vagina down there, and so I, I feel like I would be doomed. Yeah, that's complicated. Way. Yeah, it's, a, it's very complicated for me. But you you did the song, and then you, you finished the song, and then that was at Largo, right? It was, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and Nancy, and they're touring quite a Seems like they're doing a lot of shows now. They are, yeah. It's it's been really interesting uh, for Megan firing up a, a new band. Um, whenever she performs as herself, she can she can sell out. Excuse me. Can I have some more of that whiskey, please? <laughs> it's in the Ark of the Covenant, it's right delicious. there. Uh, but keep your eyes shut. That's spicy. Um, actually, can I grab a water? Yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you. She uh, she she'll she'll she just did this huge tour of Australia. Where she like sold out opera houses. My and God! She took Stephanie, uh, her band, her bandmate, with her, and they did a couple Nancy and Beth songs on the tour. But it's this it's this interesting new thing where uh, having a new band that that uh, sounds like oh like Kevin Bacon has a band now, right? Um, that there, there's something it, it appeals to a different audience than either comedy fans or even fans of Broadway, which is more of what she's known uh, yeah. to sing as. But this band is so uh, exciting and fun. They do, it's it's uh, Megan and Stephanie Hunt, who is on Friday Night Lights. and mm-hmm. She's in our movie, Somebody Up There Likes Me. Um, 
she's 23, Megan's 53, uh, and they are either this incredible sister or mother-daughter act. Eric McCormack had the best quote, which was, it's like if you wanted to fuck the Judds. Uh, <laughs> which... <laughs> Which it really is. You mean like, Winona and Naomi, right? I am. Yeah. I mean, because Ashley. I mean, because Ashley Judd always gets a. a I mean, sure. <laughs> Actually, you know, I think I would take. I, I think I would take a shot at Naomi. I, I think the, there's something about her. I haven't given it a lot of thought, but I, I, I one of, the families of that ilk that I've come across, the uh, the obvious choice is never the one to make. That <laughs> Ashley may very well prove to be a, a gentleman eventually, or. Uh, I, th- I think the mom is the way to go. I think Naomi's the way to go. I think Naomi's the way to go. Um, but they, uh, they're they so sexy and fun. They they do a lot of close harmony, like old 30s and 40s songs. Uh, and they do all this choreography, like old school, sort of jitter buggy, shimmying. Um, and it's, it's, it's a toe-tapping good time. It's like... It's an enervating show of, of a kind that uh, that sort of cool popular culture has left far behind. And it, again, um, it's the kind of thing that you see in like a Garrison Keillor show where it's just great sort of old-fashioned folk slash bluegrassy renditions of stuff. Um, and I, I am loving um, that they're, that they're, like they started at Largo and they had a couple shows where people were like, what is this now? And, you know, people would start drifting in and now they're starting to sell out shows. And so they're just kind of starting to roll. And I think we're going to probably see a lot more of them. And I love opening for them or like getting to be their special guest. It's a great privilege. Well, and it's, it's, again, it's that idea of, you know, it's kind of building up what you were saying before. If things are generally in two states, they're either growing or they're dying and withering. And so the fact that she... Because there's a difference between when... I think when you see an actor like get in a band and they're like, oh, they just kind of want to get the adulation of being in a band versus that's such a specific thing that she's doing. She obviously really loves doing that. Yeah. People will pick up on that. Yeah, it's not... I mean, it's like if she wanted to... Uh, and I'm not familiar with an actor... like. I, that that does what you're saying but if she wanted to just get like a rock star experience she already can like she already sells out theaters just singing Mm -hmm. standards um but the the uh passion and energy that she puts into this it's just a crazy old school uh showbiz champ like she she's up there dancing her fanny off and she's it turns super hilarious and fun and girlish or sometimes really sultry and sexy. I, I love nothing more than sitting in an audience and watching her because getting to look around this adoring audience with the feeling of, that's my bitch, is... <laughs> well, I mean... Early on, one of the first things she took me to in like 2000, I went and saw her sing with, I believe, the Seattle Gay Men's Choir on an invitation and so it was like this huge, you know, probably... Gay men's or Neil Gaiman? Uh, Seattle Gay Men's okay. Choir, yeah. Okay, I wish Neil Gaiman would have, have a choir. choir. They sing only dirges. <laughs> <laughs> Mephistopheles appears for the encore. If they hit just the right chord. 
<laughs> but uh, sitting in this big, beautiful opera house in theater, uh, in Seattle, where she and they, you know, they they made uh, they treated her like a Broadway diva, where they carried her out on a palanquin. Oh, right. Okay. And, um, four scantily clad, you know, bears like carried out her out on a litter, and but then she sings. And when she sings, she just fuck. She slays the entire theater. Um, when she was in Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein on Broadway, she had this song called uh, "Deep Love," which was a a pan to Frankenstein's penis. <laughs> Deep love. Uh, and she ends it with this rock note just downstage center in a spotlight. And every night, without fail, then it would be a blackout. The place would erupt like a rock show. It just, she just has this Ethel Merman ability to like send out ten times more noise than it seems like she should be able to. So sitting in the theater this first time in Seattle, <laughs> I was like, we were just dating. And she was hypnotizing 2000 people. And I just looked around the whole theater and was like, yeah, that's my, that's my lady guys. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> going home with me. It makes a fellow feel pretty tall. Did you fangirl over a little bit? Did you fangirl over her a little bit backstage? Absolutely. I still do. I'm still like completely, uh, giggly around her. I can't believe I you were to... just melting the panties off every lady listening. It's right now. Why can't my boyfriend and what means that they'll figure it out, ladies? <laughs> Be patient. We're slow. <laughs> I would love to know about maybe this is a dumb question, but when you when you start crafting something, mm -hmm. woodworking, when you start to craft something, so you talked about guitars or boats or, or ukuleles, ukes. Um, is there, just in case people wanted to know what the shortened term of Just in case was. any cool people are listening. Ukes. ukes. You. Um, I go in the garden, pick a couple of cukes. A couple uh, cukes? Bring them you, in. Do you, are you still doing cukes and ukes? Yeah, juice them. And then uh, I, I just find that my, my acumen for playing the uke is much improved after a couple of cukes. <laughs> Your acu? Cukes? Makes the ladies juke. <laughs> Until they puke. That's right. Um, rhymes are good. I am curious though, when you're building something, do you, how much, like how much of the essential quality of that thing do you need to have an understanding of? Like you basically have a block of wood and inside that wood is an object that you are unlocking. So how much do you need to, how much of an understanding of that object do you need to have going in and what it's about? Or do you just start and sort of figure it out along the way well it depends on the uh, on the item being crafted but uh, I, I'm trying to think of something I've made uh, it, it's funny like everything I make comes out of an organic use um, I wanted to build a canoe uh, because boat building is is just sort of um, a, uh, a natural progression when you achieve certain pieces of furniture and you're studying uh, furniture masters books or a uh, fine woodworking magazine somebody says at some point okay well eventually if you've done this and this you're gonna have to build a boat like if you want to keep going the the hardest thing to do is a boat because there's no straight lines on a boat mm -hmm. and there's it's almost all handwork um, and I love canoeing and kayaking and so I was, it was a dream of mine like some one of these days when I get a chance I got to build a canoe so I finally got the chance, and I did, and then I built canoe paddles, uh, and all of that had a use. And so nothing feels more magical than taking like a, 
a shitty plank of of construction timber and shaping it into a paddle and as you're as you're finalizing the shape and putting the curves on it and sanding it you can feel its use it's as though you're you've carved a shovel or an axe or something where you're like oh my i could feel it like in moments i'll be outside digging a hole with this goddamn thing and it used to be a useless plank of wood i mean that must give you a certain sense of if there were an apocalypse i would be okay it does it's comforting and um i i do have a a book that i treasure which is a set of plans for uh, a water wheel to power a wood shop because when the shit goes down the first thing i'll need to do is is get my shop going if i'm going to be building boats for everybody for everybody um and once again i hope uh, pratt and i have a whole plan um we're going to get together and between the two of us he'll provide meat for the community <laughs> and i'll i'll provide us vessels and we should uh, we should run a pretty impressive town. Um, It'll sort of be akin to uh, starting the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company when all the other ships have fallen down. Yes, but this one ship remains, yeah. and then therefore you have monopoly on shovels and meat. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it'll just it'll keep us uh, above water. Do you philosophically uh, have to? Do you challenge yourself to only build things that you will use, or do you sort of? Like, oh, I'll just try that for the fuck of it. I, you know, that's an interesting... Well, I, I would not be opposed to, you know, building something I wouldn't use. Um, but so far, I haven't had time to get to those because I... Um, one of our guys at the shop built a kazoo this year, and we call him the Kazoo Tycoon because they're selling really well. <laughs> and so he's making a, um, a great deal of... A great many kazoos. Uh, and that was something that, you know... We we looked at different woods and and he did a lot of uh, a lot of prototype work to find which w- woods made a nicer resonation and um, and we'll get into a lot of that when we're building these ukes. Uh, the ukulele will you know I, I I play guitar I really enjoy playing music and so as we choose the woods for the different parts the soundboard and the sides and back and the neck. We will use, you know, the work of uh, of luthiers for hundreds of years before us who say, well, start with mahogany for the neck, unless you're a, a dick. Um, <laughs> That's a loose translation. Yes. That was, I, mean, I believe it was Eric Clapton. Who said, um, <laughs> but, you know, we'll also, we'll, we'll play with woods that we have around the shop. You know, there are... Um, a great many woods that give you a combination of, of nice musical tones combined with beauty, you know, for, for just the, the, the beautiful face of the ukulele or eventually the guitar. And so we, we like playing those instruments. So as we're making them, we will feel the music, you know, we'll, we'll sort of, uh, we know that we're making a musical instrument. When you, when you build a boat, you know that you're making something that wants to be both lightweight and really strong. Mm-hmm. So everything you make, you're testing, you're feeling the weight and you're feeling the strength. Um, I, I'm trying to think of something, you know, if somebody asked me to build them a wooden um, bicycle, I, I, I wouldn't plan to make myself a wooden bicycle, but I, 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 as a bicycle rider, I would do the same thing. I would choose woods for their tensile strength or for their lightweight or, or whatever properties best befit the the project 
Um, and sometimes you have to work with a client. We made a stool for a, a lady who's a, um, in a, uh, a coven. She, she's a, a Wiccan lady. Okay. And it was uh, some sort of magical stool uh, of healing that had a hole in the middle of it. And it had an, uh, uh, an armature that would hold a, a steaming cauldron mm-hmm. of herbs that apparently the, the vapors from these herbs would medicinally affect the nether regions of a lady sitting on the stool. Oh, sure, of course. So as so as this part of this uh, magic vagina chair, mm-hmm. did you have to imbue it yourself as the woodworker with magical properties, or were those, did she subcontract that, or did she put those in? I did, uh, I did lay some powerful magic on, in my... <laughs> In, in, in testing the prototypes of the stool, I definitely surrounded it uh, with a cloud of glamour, shall Good. we say. There's a, there's a thing that um, I, I, when I was, uh, uh, I don't know, like seven or eight years ago, I decided, you know, I want to start exercising regularly because I don't want to hit 50 someday and be like, my body is a bag of useless junk. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I have a really great relationship with the guy who's been training me uh, for all these years. And he said something once, which I I always loved, which is because a lot of the training was boxing early on. And and he would say, line, speed, beauty. You first have to learn the line of the thing. Then you can do it fast. And then once you do that, then you can start, you know, exploring how to make it beautiful, how to make, you know, each move look, you know, sort of glorious. Do you you find the same thing with, with woodworking? Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you learn a new technique, uh, when, when you're learning to use a spoke shave for the first time, it's very slow going, you know, you have to, you have to learn to sharpen it and tune it up and make it perform. And that's a slow process. And then, and you know, that's what, that's the definition of work for me when you're using a tool is to, is to first see how the tool performs and how it performs in your hands. And then you learn, and then you go to speed where you learn then how fast can you make it work like that and still get the output that you want. And then once you, once you have mastered the, the speed, that's, that's what I interpret as work. Like I expect my workers to take a tool, know how to use it and then use it as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, and that's how you earn more dollars per hour yeah, experience <laughs> points. Yeah. And then, and then finally, w- with mastery comes the beauty of oh, I can, I can look at that paddle and or that axe handle and say okay, I can shape that with a spoke shave in sixty-seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, it's I, I, I never because I was because of the way I grew up and I, I I didn't I didn't really live in the physical world in the sense that I wasn't really athletic and I never you know worked out and I always despised that because the. You know, the the archetypal jock always fucking shoved me in a trash can, literally, when I was a kid. So I always rebelled against all that. But then as I started to get older, I began to have an appreciation for it. And what I never expected was that, you know, that kind of doing things, doing physical things, kind of living a little bit in the physical world had great benefits for the emotional world. Like there were things that I learned through boxing and exercising of like, you know, like when I first started boxing, it was like I was always up on my toes. And he was like, no, 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 lean, like lean back. And so I, 
absorb that as a lesson to when I'm on stage, literally just like breathing and kind of leaning back and letting the audience come a little bit rather than going at them so hard. Yeah. I never would have learned that lesson without something physical. Do you find the same thing has translated into your art? Yeah, I mean, I think I think my approach uh, has always been the same in my my art on st as a performer and my art in the shop. Um, but but they do. That's a great that's a great life example. Um, the way that existing in the physical world can't help but then uh, um, bleed into our, our our world of sitting at a desk or you know all the, all this sort of inside work we do with our brains or doing a podcast or, or writing a blog or what have you. Um, if you, if, if you, I find if nothing else, I have to go on a couple hikes a week. And when I'm on a hike, I can just feel the stress of like when I'm shooting my show for 12 hours, it's super fun. It's, I couldn't imagine a more dreamy job, but it's very high pressure. Like I, I need to be on my game and ready to nail these moments, you know, we're all having a great time, and, and uh, I can go eat a sandwich anytime I want to. But when the camera's rolling, I've got, you know, I have to perform at this high level. And so, even though I'm a very calm person, that somewhere in me that's placing stress between my shoulder <laughs> blades, you know, it's saying, okay, just keep your shit together. Right. It's a test. Every time the camera's on, you're being, you're, it's a test. It is, yeah. You have to be up to, up to the test. And, um, and so, I find that just a couple hikes. Uh, or spending some hours in my shop using my muscles is such an incredible way to let that stress come out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and something that's why I, I encourage people in my in the show that I do. I talk a lot about just find something to do with your hands because it's beneficial. If you learn to knit, a you end up with all the scarves and blankets you could ever want. But beyond that, you're helping yourself. It's it's very healthy in the way that you're talking about. I think it's an interesting idea t for people to who have their sort of little comfort bubbles of things they know they're good at. To it's sort of why I was asking you the journeyman question before. Did I get that right about the journeyman? By the way, of like trying a lot of different, or or does a journeyman just focus on one? Well, it it depends. Um, uh, 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 there's a, a difference between a journeyman and like a jack of all trades. That's what I was thinking of. Um, journeyman's just under like it goes for like an apprentice, right? It, yeah, I mean the the term journeyman comes from sort of an old world. I know in Germany woodworkers still have to do this, where they they have literally like a bag of tools and a bindle, and they have to leave for three years, and they have to just uh, they have like a tent they can camp out or stay at hostels, and they just find. A place where they need them to build stuff and they they learn and when they can they find a master to learn from but they have to just go out on a journey for three years and then wh wherever that takes them to then they're ready to become like a certified master okay good so I was a hundred percent wrong about that before which I'm okay with um, but I uh, uh, I like the idea of um, uh, Oh, fuck, I had something that I, just a point that I was about. To, oh, right. So people that are in their comfort bubbles, I think it's good to learn a completely disparate thing from something that you think that you're used to, a completely different thing. If you live all in the in the sort of mental universe, try something really physical or learn something. Because you, you learn so many unique lessons for the thing that you're already doing by learning other trades mm -hmm. that you never would have thought of before that... 
that it just weirdly, your body, your muscles, it just internal, you internalize it in such an interesting way that it almost becomes this knowledge that's a part of your molecular structure. I don't know if that makes sense. But. It does, no. I, th- I, think that, uh, I think that's great advice to try, try the things that you would never imagine yourself doing, even if only to find out, oh, this is why... <laughs> Either you'll say, okay, that's why I never wanted to jump out of an airplane, or you'll say, oh my God, this is my new thing. This is the greatest thing I could ever imagine. But either way, you just come into a fuller understanding. I love anything that makes me put myself in other people's shoes because my life has a lot of, of potential stress in it, just like a lot of people asking me stupid questions. when, Like I have a really busy schedule, and you get emails that are just where you say to yourself, now, go back and write this email again, please. <laughs> And include the three pieces of information to save us three exchanges. Like, right. Um, you know, even if it's just from like my cousin, like, hey, can you get, can my friend get two tickets to your show in San Francisco? And write them back and say, I need their names. I need the date of the show. I need to know when they're, like, when are they right. pick it up? Or just like, hey, can you send somebody a t shirt? I'm like, I can. What's their name? What's their t shirt size? Where are we sending it? <laughs> work with Streamline. Work Streamline. With I don't have a lot of time, um, and and so I, I, whenever I get stuff like that, I say okay. I put myself in their shoes, and I, I'm like, okay, you know, don't get mad at your cousin. He's a he's a great guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're you're just getting, uh, you you just have such a a, um, a precious little amount of time to take care of your correspondence that you wish they could read your mind, and they sure. can't, and sure. and the rest of the world can't. So. That's why we have to be vigilant about who we should vote for and, and social issues is because no one no one's reading our minds. Like, isn't it obvious that, you know, same-sex people should get the same marriage rights? Well, no, apparently it's not because a vast majority of people just aren't thinking about it. They're, you know, their idea of it is only what they hear about in church or, I don't know, see on CBS comedies or something where they, they have somebody's agenda instead of like a fully grasped, fully rounded idea. Well, and because it's, you know, I think a lot of that, I think a lot of that really does have to do with, and I, I've said this numerous times, our brains are not evolved to handle all of the data that it is, that they are forced to process now. Way more data, like constantly you're pulled, you know, email, smartphones, or, you know, it's oh. a million channels, internet, everything. Uh, billboards but, everywhere. Like there's especially, so much especially those of us that are young enough to, we we completely developed into adults before it hit, but we're still young enough to be like, play, you know, uh, vibrant players in the cultural game, but we're up against these twenty year olds whose brains are six are bionic compared to ours. <laughs> compared to ours like, it know. is sort of the Elroy and the Jetsons thing like oh he's this you know he's in fifth grade doing calculus like they already yeah they just process like kids just understand gadgets out of the womb yeah um if you if, if I have trouble with my software I look for a six-year-old <laughs> they know every time they can literally crawl inside the machine <laughs> uh and tinker with it but but I think you know what happens for a lot of people is you know there are so much there's so many and I'm not justifying it I'm just this is just my theory on why there's still like weird intolerance is that there there's there's so many demands being placed on our attention that for people to have 
a prefab belief system that they don't have to put any energy in is just very easy for them. So if it happens to be the belief system of the immediate community that they're in, it is way more. And I think that's why some people, that's why I think that's why some older people start to get a little racist. Where you're like, hey, you never were racist before. How come you just said dot, 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 that Mexican fella? Like, what yeah. do you, you know, like, I think as people get older, they have less and less energy. So it's easier for them to go, well, I'll just stereotype. I'll just shortcut rather than what yeah. I should do, which is really look at every situation as unique and try to understand it on a human level it seems like people are just shortcutting it's a it's a lazy choice sure and it makes sense i, I grew up in a really small town uh my family goes to the catholic church and it it's a great community of people like it's a salt of the earth kind of illinois town but there are certain things that are closed-minded or homophobic or, or prejudiced in some way and, you know, there are things discussed in that community, as in all communities, for example, when it's time to vote for, uh, to elect the president, you know, there's a lot of discussion at the church. And there's no, all the people who are leading like happy, competent lives in that community, there's no reason for them to question. They're like, well, this is all working fine. So I guess, you know, what the priest says, I should vote for that guy, even, you know. They don't. They, most of the community that are that are my peers, my age, aren't asking themselves questions about pro-life issues or any of these things. Yeah, that guy like, said that. I should probably just do that. Yeah, I mean, the system seems to be working. So it's almost like being a kid, and you just sort of ape whatever your parents say, and you go, "Oh, that must be." Yeah. That must be the truth because oh, I should. Oh, I, I guess I vote for that guy too because you don't really question it or you don't have the resources to question it. That's also what you said. It's one less thing you have to worry about. Like, right. And these days, because the internet is everywhere, the you know, these you have something like you're that you're obsessed with, like your fantasy football team, mm -hmm. where you're like, okay, if you can Honey, if you can go ahead and pick the candidates, like <laughs> today's draft day, just let me know, like whatever, you know, call Father Tony, see whatever, you know, whatever everybody's choosing, that's fine with us. You know, we're part of the community. Now let me get back to Andrew Luck. <laughs> well, um, I don't, uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because we've been here for an hour and I don't want to, I, I know that you're busy. I, I'll talk to you for another two hours if you want, but uh, but I the, I do want to make a couple more points. Number one, the the little video that you made for your movie in your work workshop with Adam Scott and Megan, it was fucking hilarious. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I tweeted that shit out the second I saw it. I'm, um, very, very, I'm very proud of that That work. was a great, um, it's kind of an obnoxious thing to say, I'm going to, I tweeted that shit out, bro. <laughs> um, but, it, but it was, I, I, I really... I was not offended. <laughs> okay, good. It just said it's just I don't know. It just sounds like a weird. It was like the time I threatened someone with Twitter because they were being a dick, and I'm like, what am I doing? Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, that that video was really great, and I, I I imagine that it it did pretty well to raise some awareness for the movie. I think so. I I am uh, I'm very ignorant, willfully to how the, like I had to ask my friends. Once we released it, then I was like, okay, how do we tell how it's doing? And there, and I was told that uh, YouTube is always like a day behind in the amount of views. So we're still, we're just beginning to have the numbers kind of come in of both how many people are looking at that video 
It's on YouTube called Somebody Up There Likes Me Promo 2. <laughs> a delicious... How'd you come up with that title? <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so we're, and we're just starting to figure out because the, you know, ultimately we want people to look at the video and then be inspired to watch the movie, which is available video on demand. And you can, there's a link, you know, at the end of the video. And so I'm very interested to see how it all works because it's been, you know, sort of uh, my own idea for how to market, how I can use my own resources to help market this great little comedy. And uh, I, I know that I'm lucky enough to ha have friends like Adam Scott and Amy and Allison Bree, you know, come out and... and and do this. Uh, I, I, I sent a message. I emailed uh, Allison Bree and I said, you know, people are going to be running up to you on the streets and saying pussy and weed now all the time, right? <laughs> With any luck. Uh, <laughs> if I played my cards right. <laughs> it's the pussy and weed girl. Hey, um, it's Enrico Palazzo. But, it, we, you know, we love we love doing things. Uh, it, that's one thing I love about the Internet is it's this channel where you can do anything you want and there's no rules. And so I thought that would be a really funny idea. And, um, and we ended up, it was supposed to be just a quick little thing. And, you know, we ended up then going into the studio and recording the song. The song's <laughs> available at bandcamp.com. The song is great. Thank you. There, there's a bonus verse uh, on the bandcamp version. Okay. That invokes uh, Jim Jarmusch's Pearly Mead. <laughs> Now you've got a belly full of Jarmish's pearly mead. Show us your little biscuit. We really don't like to plead. Get your britches down, dicky dicky. Sundance is guaranteed. If you got weed and pussy, pussy and weed. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm, bucking, I'm looking around for an award to give you. Do you want this Daedric armor? I, uh, I would proud, proudly put that uh, into a charity auction. <laughs> And make some dude outside of Pittsburgh really happy <laughs> with that thing on his desk. So Somebody Up There Likes Me as a movie is available now on Video On Demand. It is. You can also find it on iTunes. Um, it's, it's really great. And, you know, I, I recommend watching it with friends um, if possible. We've, we've learned that uh, it's, it's sort of the, the, the comedy is, is founded in... The, the disaffection of the lead character. The movie is about the sort of disaffected teenager in all of us, uh, especially we Americans are so comfortable. I, I, I'm scared that we're turning into those grown-ups in the movie Wall-E, mm -hmm. those fat baby-like grown-ups that float <laughs> around and everything's a milkshake. Um, we're so comfortable these days that we, we kind of remain teenagers and in the film, uh, the big events in these people's lives sort of fly by them while they're paying attention to the wrong small events. Um, and, and we found that people that watch the film by themselves, like on a computer, are more likely to sort of see a piece of it in themselves. Oh, and they, wow. We, we had, it's funny. We've had like 96% really nice reviews, like people really love the movie. And there was these two guys in Chicago that were so, it was so sad. Their reviews were super bitter. Where they were just clearly angry as though they had had their feelings hurt by the filmmaker, where they were like, 
I don't know where he gets off talking about people, me, I mean, or people like this. Um, so I recommend like watching it with friends because it's, it's really quite funny and clever. It's, it's like if Woody Allen was European and he went to Austin and made an indie movie. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Did you direct it or? You... No, I produced it. You produced and it. I'm one of the main actors in it. And my wife steals the movie with three little scenes as a therapist. She's so funny. And it's also the movie where we met Stephanie Hunt and from which Nancy and Beth was born. Um, my last sort of quick topic is um, I think people look at you now as sort of like, this is, this is what a man is. Like this idea of man, you know, I'm sure you get this. I'm sure you get this a lot, you know, first of all, <laughs> I'm so jealous of you know I don't have the hair density on my face to achieve. You seem like you have a lush growth. I don't really like it. What basically what happens is it's a it's good scruff and then it gets to a certain point and my face looks like a Play-Doh Fun Factory where all of the hair just sort of grows out straight. Oh, that's unfortunate. And so it doesn't it doesn't tangle it doesn't get mossy the way that you know, a good face full of hair should really get mm -hmm. uh, and so I will forever be I think I'm just you know I don't like being totally clean shaven so I think I'm just cursed with it's just perma scruff at this oh, point you could do a lot worse I guess that's true I guess that's true there are there is a section of, of Caucasian males who nature has clearly said to them do not try to grow facial hair you will only get a patch of hair here and they do it anyway yeah um but uh, what do you what do you what do you think it means to be a man in our contemporary society? Well, you know it it's uh, interesting. To, <laughs> it's interesting to be my father's son. I mean, I grew up in a family of men, uh, and I, I will remind the public that I'm the sissy. I'm, I'm the one in the that grew up and went to theater school. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, the rest of the men in my family are school teacher, fireman, farmer, brewer. Like, and, and the ladies are nurse, librarian, school teacher. Uh, the, they're all like salt of the earth, heroic people. Both of my sisters are beautiful ladies, but they could beat the crap out of me because they're hardworking people and I'm, I'm an artist, you know? Um, so it's kind of funny that just because I am able to use tools and can grow whiskers, people are like, what a goddamn man. Well, but I think, I think, it, I think, it, I think it also has something to, I think it also has a lot to do Look at those with work boots. What a stud. Like a lot of people wear work boots. I think it has a lot to do with, um, the way you are, the way you present yourself. And I, I was always fascinated by people, when you look at people and you go, you know, what makes someone sort of magnetic? Like what makes, and, and what I think I'm realizing is it's people who are just comfortable with themselves. Like if someone's comfortable with themselves, I think that's naturally attractive because so many of us are constantly trying to figure out what are the answers? What do I not know? What is that right. guy? And so when you meet someone who isn't coming at you and just kind of sit, sitting back on their heels, uh, hashtag callback, um, <laughs> that, uh, that there's something about that that's like, hey, that guy, that guy knows something. That guy knows something because he's not freaking out like the rest of us. You know, <laughs> like, do you, do you think that, you know, how do you achieve being comfortable with yourself or, or do you disagree with that idea? No, I mean, I, uh, that's kind of part of an answer when people ask me, like, what's, 
What's the secret of Ron Swanson? Like, why did, why did Ron Swanson take off as uh, sort of an, an iconic uh, character? Or why, why is the internet freaking out about Ron Swanson? And I, I always say uh, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to be able to tell from behind the clown makeup why the children are crying. <laughs> but, um, but if I had to guess, I would say it's because people are attracted to someone who, uh, who manages to keep things simple. Um, and I, I mean, I admire that in Ron, that he's like, I've got six rules. If, if, if your choices don't fall within the purview of my rules, please get the fuck out of my face <laughs> because I have a very, I'm very satisfied with my life and I only need these six things. I don't need, I don't need all these, all this information on the internet is, is useless to me. I have all the information I need. Um, and I think that is really attractive. And I, I, um, I have been lucky that, uh, I, I found, uh, things to pursue in my life that fill my life and make me very satisfied, whether it's, uh, working as a performer with other artists that I love or making stuff in my shop. Um, that, that's, gives me a very, that and my, my relationship with Megan gives me a very full and, uh, satisfying life. And so when people ask me things about, you know, being a man, I, I would, I would say that, you know, if, if people, if people want to know secrets to that, they're probably not what you would expect. You know, they're not like, they don't involve punching people or like eating too much meat. Um, they more involve, uh, having the balls to say you're sorry, or I, I always say, you know, try and hug somebody before you punch them mm-hmm. or or try and dance with them before you get in a fist fight but that would really change mma it would <laughs> It'd be... rampage jackson is, is hugging <laughs> what is... oh and they just beat the shit it would i mean th- those are things that you know those are entertainments that are enjoyable and that's t- to be a rugged or or a badass man you know, there, there's the whole sort of Chuck Norris uh, MMA side of things, but then there's also the sort of Atticus Finch, uh, mm-hmm. you know, side of things that where it's like, well, it, it, the uh, a man, quote unquote, um, makes choices that aren't the most popular choice, and so I don't know. I I'm. A human being, so I, I have to assume I'm as big as of a fuck up as everybody else, um, and I'm constantly reminded of that fact by by making mistakes, and so I just kind of try, I just do my best to have good manners and try to treat everybody as fairly as possible, and uh, and do my work. Um, one thing I know that helps me a lot is that I consider work a privilege. I never. It's been many, many years since I had a job that I didn't like. Um, and that, I know, is part of what makes me so calm, is that when I go to work, I, I like to go to work. I, I never think, oh, God, i got to go back to my job. Either I'm going to build something beautiful at my shop, even if it's a coaster or a soap dish. I, I, I make a, as beautiful of a soap dish as I can, and I know... It's going to perform a function. It's going to hold someone's soap. And, uh, and when I go to my job as a performer, 
sometimes I get paid really well. Sometimes I get paid not very much. But in any case, I get paid by the audience, laughing or crying or receiving whatever medicine we're trying to give them. And that's a delicious payment. I mean, living in Chicago, working as a theater actor, you never got paid really almost anything. But I felt like a king because we because we were constantly part of this never-ending pageant where we tell stories to an audience and they, they show up in droves and they, they laugh and they cry and they say thank you for you know, holding a mirror up to us for 90 minutes. Uh, and that's, that's a great payment. And so that's something that I feel like when people talk about the subject of manhood, I feel like it's something that, that's applicable in, in modern times to both men and women. And so we need a new term for it. Um, I don't know if it's uh, integrity or authenticity. I don't, I'm not sure what the term is, but um, it's, it's simply, I think, the, the answer lies in owning what it is you do, what it is that makes you yourself. Um, and for me, that involves a lot of weirdness. Like a lot of what I now succeed with are what people made fun of me for a lot of my life, you know. I think it's uh, be an owner. Be an owner, yeah. Own, own it. Own, 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 own yourself. Own your jazz. Own your, yeah, yeah. Be that's, an owner. That's my new T-shirt slogan. <laughs> own some, own some real estate. Own, <laughs> own yourself. Yeah. Don't own people. No. You're, don't be an owner of other people. Not at all. We've established that that's very bad. Own yourself. I like it. Own yourself. Yeah. I mean. It, I, I I feel super lucky. I mean, when when people ask me things like, "Why are you such a man?" I'm like, "I don't know." I, if, if if you think that, if, I must be very lucky because I'm just trying to use the lessons my mom and dad gave me and like do a good job. And that's the kind of answer where they're like, "Fuck, he's a man." <laughs> Why didn't I think to do that? I thought my uh, parents were stupid. I read I read this guy Wendell Berry religiously. He's a Kentucky agrarian writer. And I, he, uh, his writing, his essays, poetry, and fiction have so much common sense and also love and humor in them. But his, it's this common sense that gives me constantly something to aspire to in this topic of like, you know, I want to continue to try and be a better man, as it were, to my community and to my wife he talks a lot about uh, fidelity and, and fellowship. Like, look around you and see, are people, are you depending on people? You know, are people having to take care of you and your needs? Or are you doing your part and helping out where you need to? Contribution. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something, you know, it never ends. You're never done where you're like, okay, there's my last bushel of potatoes. Now well, everyone start feeding me. Yeah, a lot, I, think, I think, you know, uh, a lot of people who, you know, I think, I think there's something to be said for, you know, curing stress and curing anxiety when you're too much in your own head, go contribute to someone else because yeah. it gets you out of your head and it focuses, focuses you on something else. And then you, I mean, I think we evolved to the top of the food chain because we were communal and that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So there's something in our DNA about becoming this net of, of society and culture and, and, and giving back. So I think that's really good. This was, I mean, this, what a fucking great conversation. This was so much fun. You absolutely did not disappoint. Uh, so thank you for, uh, thank you for coming in, Nick Offerman. Thank Until you. then, you just knocked over a <laughs> bottle. God damn it, Nick. Oh, man.
Everything was going great. I am shamed. <laughs> don't tell my dad that. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Enjoy your burrito. Thanks for having me. Maybe you should say enjoy your burrito, everyone. You have a better voice than I do. Enjoy your burrito. 100% better. Everyone. God damn it. <laughs> now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code Nerdist. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.